Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 darling. Bow, bow. Please believe me. This is another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wells, and you, of course, my most wonderful listeners, are most welcome to this very special episode of the show. It has been far too long now since we've last interviewed an author of Paul McCartney slash The Beatles on this show. Far too long indeed. And now I'm here to set things right with an interview that literally no other podcast will have mostly because no other podcast would be interested in speaking to the man I'm talking to here today. Here today. And as you'll hear me say in the interview, it really is their loss because my guest today is a real one-of-a-kind kind of guy. For those of you who are long-time listeners of this show, you will know that I am prone to pontificating for hours and hours, being a little egocentric, going off on wild tangents and interrupting people all the time. Well, you ain't seen nothing yet, kids, because I'll be talking to the famous slash infamous Beatle author, Mr. Geoffrey Giuliano. He's been called many things throughout his illustrious career, but I will let him get into that later. And whilst I don't think I come down too harshly either way during this interview, all I can say is that I don't think much of the hate is justified. He's a very passionate, very opinionated guy who really doesn't concern himself with the earthly, unconditional love that people will bestow upon the Beatles, and I am nothing if a guy who is drawn to controversial, opinionated people. See my fucking episodes with my good friend Tom Quee, what are you going to do? Possibly more so than any other interview I've ever done, I'm going to need to do a little preamble here, because, well, me and Jeff kind of like leap right into the conversation with very little explanation, and that is because this is not the first time I've had the pleasure of speaking with this chap. About like a fucking year ago or something, I first talked with Jeffrey, and it just never recorded. I think I may have just literally forgot to click the record button. I was using different software at the time, and that's just about the amount of time really for Jeffrey to forget all the questions that I asked him in the first place. And not only did I not get to ask half the questions that I wanted to ask, some of which I did ask the last time, some which led to fan- some fantastic anecdotes. One being that Jeffrey alludes to in this episode where he actually met George Harrison and got very close in his personal space and kept tapping him on the knee, which he still cringes about to this day. I'll have to bring that up if I ever have Jeffrey back on the show. But not only that, there's this whole load new world of deep, dark rabbit holes that have opened themselves up to me now that need addressing. And you'll know exactly what I mean by the time you've finished listening to this episode. Also, his internet, or possibly the internet of Thailand, or maybe even my internet, was a, was just awful. So there are going to be some parts in this episode where you're going to have to really prick up your ears and pay attention. I can only apologise for that. This was a really fun conversation, folks. You're going to hear my awfully sycophantic laugh over and over again, but please indulge me as I've been indulging myself. Of course... I'll have to do a bit of housekeeping just before we get into that. To get in contact with the show, please email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Especially let me know your thoughts on Jeffrey Giuliano. Have you read Blackbird? Have you read Dark Horse or any of his other works? 
Are there any other authors you want me to get on the show? Don't say Mark Lewison. You know I'm not going to actually be able to get him on, though I am going to one of his talks that is going to be hosted in the city of Birmingham, near where, where I live, in October. I'm really looking forward to that. And I'm working on establishing contact with the author Tom Doyle, who wrote the fantastic McCartney book, Man on the Run. Be looking to get him on soon as well. That is paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. The quicker way to get in contact with the show is on our Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. It's the best way to keep up to date with, with the show, join all of our little pointless polls and whatever McCartneyisms that I like to post out there. Find us on YouTube and on Facebook. Simply by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. Check out the blog. We'll have a new article up on there soon about the multi-part Paul McCartney songs. You can find that at www.paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. As always, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Many of you have done just that already, and we have a wonderful four-slash-four-and-a-half-star rating on iTunes. I can only thank you for that, but if any of you out there can take an extra five minutes out of your day to give us a five-star review on iTunes, that boosts the show and helps us out in ways that I cannot even begin to comprehend, let alone understand and explain to you guys. And finally, check out our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash McCartneyPod. Links down below. I'm sure you all know what Patreon is by now. It's the way that you can help me, the independent content creator, who is also working a full-time job and not putting horrible ads on this show to actually make a bit of moolah from this podcast. I would love to do this full-time. And to our couple of Patreon supporters out there who are already supporting us on this show, I can only thank you over and over and over again. Um, I actually withdrew my first $100 from the Patreon the other day, and that is going to go right back into the show. We're, we're going to get a new mouth guard, a new mic. Very exciting stuff. If you want to help contribute to the show, even if it's just like a cup of coffee every month, a dollar or $5 or something, then check out our Patreon down below. Help the show expand. Help keep the lights running. Now, that's all well and good, but I know why you came here. I know what you've paid for. Well, I know what a couple of you have, have, have actually paid for. Let us move on to the live segment of the show. Take it away, me. And there... My guest today is one that I've been looking forward to have on this show for some time now, as there's never been a Beatle author, a Lennon author, a McCartney author like this before or since, really. Uh, he's somewhat of a revisionist, though that term might not be appropriate today, as there's always been a slew of non-family-friendly stories since the 60s with the Beatles, but obviously due to certain corporate interests, those are tales that are kind of pushed to the bottom of the pile. If anything, what drew me to my guest today is that there is... Unlike anyone else there like him, he's very unafraid to share stories. And if anything, this show has always been the peddler of the intriguing and the controversial. So let's not waste any more time. He's the author of an insane number of Beatle publications, including Dark Horse, The Private Life of George Harrison, and most importantly for t t today's purpose, Blackbird, The Life of Paul McCartney, which has been one of the key texts for this show. Ladies and gentlemen, will you please welcome Mr. Jeffrey Giuliano? Hello, Jeff. Hello, Paramahansa, not Yogananda said, every hundred years, uh, the Lord grabs the world, turns it upside down, and shakes it out. Now we're well on the way for our generation to hit the dirt. And it's very sadly, two out of four Beatles have already done so. The other two Beatles, what is Ringo, 81, and Paul is, what, 79? He, it was his birthday yesterday, yeah. So he, he, he's, God, they're all cracking on now, aren't they? My gosh. Yeah, not only them, but us too. So let us not talk falsely now, my brother, for the hour is getting late. So let's have a compendium of truth, a cornucopia 
of honesty today and let the chips fall where they may. That is possibly the best intro that that one of my guests has done for one of our conversations. So thank you very much for that. I am fully behind that. Let's get all of the pitter-patter out of the way. Let's get people up to date with who you are. Obviously, I know all of the answers to, to these questions, but my audience might not. So, correct me if I'm wrong, let's start this off with a somewhat light-hearted question. You were Ronald McDonald at one point? Yeah, I graduated with a master's degree of acting and directing in 1976 from the State University of New York in Brockport, New York, and I saw an advertisement, so they were wanting an actor to portray the marvelous, marvelous magical Burger King, and, and, and there was a room that you would go to, and I went there, and I did, the, they gave me 10 minutes to learn the song, and the whatever it was, and I did it, and I went outside, they said, they wanted, could you wait in the hall, and I was listening at the door, and they said, this guy's like too good, <laughs> he's almost, so I got that job, and I was first. The marvelous magical Burger King, who could do most anything. And that culminated in doing a show at the Kennedy Compound in Hyannisport, Massachusetts. And I became a little bit friendly with the Kennedy family, which was a big deal for me because I'm a, a Democrat and a Kennedy fan. Now, when that gig came to an end after about a year, I got in touch with the people that were dealing with Ronald McDonald. And it so happened that they were looking for one for Canada. Some people think I was for the United States. I wasn't. It was actually for Canada. Right. And I did that job for about a, for exactly a year. And then the whole time I had been doing that, I should mention that I was an ardent vegetarian on ethical grounds. Mm-hmm. As I say to people, I'm so very few ethics that those that I've managed to hold on to over the years, I uh, zealously guard. Mm-hmm. So no kidding. But I, I thought of it like this. If you play a Nazi in a movie... You're not sh- uh, hauled off to the criminal court in The Hague after you've <laughs> You're just, you're an actor and you're doing a job. However, when you're actually spending the majority of your time trying to influence innocent young children about thoughtlessly uh, killing and consuming animals, then that becomes different. And it's, it, it was, uh, and I, I couldn't abide it. I left. And then about, maybe eight years later after I'd written several of my most popular Beatle books and was Mm -hmm. rich, I was sitting in my third floor of my house in Lockport, New York, big Victorian manor. And I thought, you know what? We could use this to promote vegetarianism, which I have been doing um, ever since. If you go to the Jeffrey Giuliano channel on YouTube, there's a documentary about this time in my life called Confessions of a Corporate Clown. And basically, I feel the same way as Paul McCartney. Look, if you don't have to kill something to eat, don't do it. That is one of my favourite Paul McCartney stories, the way that he, he supposedly pulled that fish out of the water and he was fishing and he felt like this thing was alive as well. Uh, he's obviously gone full vegan. Um, have you ever been tempted to go full vegan? Uh, yes and no. There's been times in my life for both. Um, I read my first book on vegetarianism when I was about 14. Okay. I started a health food store. So I'm now 65, 66 on 9-11. Odd, I guess, Mark of the Beast or something. And so uh, I've been doing this a long, long time. And uh, I, I would tell you that, you know, I never drank, I never smoked, 
and I've been a vegetarian all these years, and um, I think I look better than a lot of the guys I went to university with. <laughs> did all the Obviously, your looks are very important. You're also an actor, quite a prolific one, actually. Um, I like, like uh, even before I knew who you were, I'd actually seen you in both Scorpion King Three and Mechanic Resurrection. But of all the clips that I found of you online, there is one that really sparked my imagination, and it's this scene of you as uh, the role of a hunter or something, and you are attacked by this tiger. But then, not only that, the tiger then like approaches a, a kid, and then your face comes out of the tiger's mouth. Like, what is that film? I need to find that out. Yeah, that's what they call the money shot. <laughs> in a movie, they're going to actually say, okay, this is the shot we're going to spend lots and lots of money on and make the movie very popular mm -hmm. and make a big deal. And that was the money shot for that movie. And that, was, that was a very lucky movie for me. You're quite right. That is a good movie. It's a Thai movie. I speak Thai in the movie um, and English. But uh, it is one of my favorites. It wasn't very popular. The two biggest movies I did were Mechanic Resurrection and Scorpion King 3. I'm a guy that's like sort of flirted with being some kind of a, I won't say movie star, but very popular movie actor, but have never gotten there. So I'm sort of all, as of yet, I'm all, and it's doubtful that I will at this point, but I've always been a bridesmaid and never a bride. I've worked with Tommy Lee Jones, Patrick Stewart, all wow. these guys, you know, like a toe to toe, and I, I didn't, you know, and, and for fear of seeming not humble, which I don't think I've been accused of many times, <laughs> I, they didn't, didn't seem incredibly better than me. I think they were perhaps quite a bit luckier than me, and uh, maybe were more dedicated. I had never intended to be an author. I'd never taken a writing lesson. I was the editor of the school newspaper in university. That's it. And I wrote poetry as a kid, and I read a lot, but I'm not a trained writer. This whole thing of writing now 32 books, obviously now I know how to do it, mm -hmm. but it's all instinctual. Um, it's nothing where I was taught. I was trained to be an actor, but I have no training as a writer. And um, it was just sort of... The, uh, when the opportunity came up to write my first book, The Beatles of Celebration, in Toronto with Methuen and later published by McClelland, uh, no, 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 uh, St. Martin's Press mm. in America and Sidrick and Jackson in London, it was a train wreck or, or it was like an accident. I mean, it's just like they gave me the money and some of my friends said, what are you going to do, run away with the money? And I said, well, I thought about that, but then I thought, <laughs> well, maybe I'll try to run. So um, I just, it's just something I can do. If you put a gun to my head and said, if you don't tell me how to write a book, we'll kill you. I said, well, you're going to have to pull the trigger because it's nothing I can explain. It's nothing that I've been trained to do. It's just something I know how to do. The London Times once said about me, Jeffrey Giuliano's real talent is not particularly his writing, but the subjects that he picks to write about, although he's a very competent writer. And I agree with that. Um, I, look, my books came out just before the Internet. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, Nicholas Schaffner's books, whatever the two want, the two that he wrote, were the sort of just before me. And then there was nothing for quite a long time. And all those Beatle people mm -hmm. had nothing. And you couldn't go to Google because there was no such thing. And that's probably why... I was able to fill a hole at that time 
and they just literally threw nine well nine million dollars over from nineteen yeah nineteen eighty four to two thousand and six I pocketed nine million dollars now I only got about ten cents a book and the books were like fifteen to thirty dollars so when people say Jeffrey Giuliano sucks he's a terrible writer that all may be true it isn't but let's go let's not get too far ahead I don't I don't want to spunk our load on the audience too soon people say how why is he published why do they keep publishing those books the answer is they made a lot of money for the publishers people keep buying them yeah and oh my gosh I don't think I could ever take a high a high road if someone said Sam do you want to make a lot of money from this podcast of course I would not turn them down it's it's how the world works but let me just intervene to say that's how the word world worked. Since the advent of the internet, the printed book industry is gone. It's over. And so's radio stations, you know, radios. I had always thought that after I wrote my books and acted a little bit, I'd probably have a radio, talk radio show. And, and you know, and when I was coming up, there was like a building. And it said something, something, something radio station. And you would go in and they don't have that anymore. Everybody's doing it on their desktop. So the Internet is a mixed bag. It's a blessing with communication. Mm. And you know, we all know the good. But it also ruined the book industry. Just like these fucking MP3 transfers. Where's the album cover? Where's the fun that I had in 1968 of opening the White Album and pulling that poster out and pulling the four pictures or, or standing up Sergeant Pepper when I was tripping. And, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the whole art, and it is an art, of album covers is gone. And, and they've wiped out an art. So I'm not a big, on one level, I mean, it cost me, I probably would have made a few million, squeezed out a few million more had the internet not come along when it had. For uh, after the advent of Google, you didn't have to buy a book. All you have to do is type in John Lennon's brother, sister, mother, cousin, uncle, and you can read for the rest of your life. There's no need for any books. Mm. So it, I'm of you know, two minds about it, but financially, the internet cost me a comfortable retirement. Well, fortunately, it allowed me to get in contact with you in the first place, so I'm not going to deride the, the internet too much. It is my own bread and butter. I don't want to sound too much like a Luddite. So you were commissioned to do the first Beatle book that you worked on. It was, it was the strangest, most unbelievable story. I was living in Toronto. I just finished my contract with Ronald McDonald. I had no money. Neighbors were bringing food to the house. My work permit was up. <laughs> back to Buffalo, New York. And I just, mm -hmm. in desperation, looked under P for Publishers in the yellow pages, put my finger on a company, you know, on the page. The company was called Matthew and Carswell. I called up and I said, hi, would you like a book in the Beatles? Nobody could do that. I'll just put the phone down. They, they said, hold on a moment. A guy got on the phone after about five minutes. He said, hi, this is William Hushin. Did you say you had a Beatle book? Well, no, I don't have a Beatle book, but I can write a Beatle book because I'm imminently qualified. And they said, you know, that's really funny because we were just sitting around the boarding the boardroom saying, if only we had a Beatles book because there hasn't been one in a long time. Come right down. I got two suitcases of memorabilia and I came back with a check for $30,000 for World Rights when I had not a penny in my pocket. And it all went from there. The, the, the first book, The Beatles of Celebration, was a big hit. It was on the coffee table at Apple. I met Paul McCartney through that. Linda loved it. Yeah, there's what's not to love. 
And then, now, I'll be honest with you. Well, your books got so bitchy after that. Yeah, they did. And let me tell you, uh, there's two reasons for that. And, and, and the first one was completely mercenary. Look, I once said to Pete Townsend, if I'm going to be honest about you and slag you off, I'm going to be just as brutally honest about myself. There was an author called Kitty Kelly, and she was writing salacious books about Frank Sinatra, Ronald Reagan, etc. And my agent, Robert mm -hmm. Smith, said to me, listen, Jeff, you know, if you write a kind of shitty book on the Beatles, you're going to make ten times as much money. I will? Yeah, you will. Okay, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> now, you'll never find an author that's going to make an admission like that. But that was it. It was for the money, initially. Okay? And that was that, mm -hmm. that dark horse, because my second book was uh, John Lennon, my brother, with that horrible woman, Julia Baird, which could be a whole other show. Why does Jeffrey call her horrible? <laughs> um, but anyway, um, she cheated me on Nowhere Boy. I should have gotten half the money from that. But anyway, never asked. Wow. So, so my second book was uh, John Lennon, my brother, that Paul McCartney wrote the forward to. So this is when people point out, oh, Jeffrey's just so unauthorized and just some guy that's just... What are you talking about? Paul McCartney wrote the foreword to my second book, John Lennon, My Brother. Now, when we got to Dark Horse was when Robert Smith said, you know, if you put some gossip in there, if you put some sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you're going to make a lot more money. So I moved to Henley-on-Thames. I lived at the house of John Lord, the bass player from Deep Purple, Smoke in the Water, as a caretaker with Legs Larry Smith from the Bonzo Dog Band. And, you know... Larry, everybody knows Larry was great friends with George. He did the cover for Don Trapo and so forth. And, you know, we used to do coke together and all that. So I, I didn't make anything up. Just because I wanted to do a salacious book to make a bit more money, uh, mm -hmm. I was lying. It meant that I actually kind of fell in to what George used to call the rock star belt in Henley with all of Deep Purple and Mary Hopkin and other people that lived around there. Mm. And to know these people, I lived there for on and off for about a year, and I just wrote about what they did. And what they did was salacious, you know, but not so much. Nobody was a junkie or anything. They would just, I mean, John Lord, God bless him, told me that he used to have to keep his coke underneath the nanny's mattress. He'd go and put it there in the afternoon because he knew that at 3 o'clock in the morning, he couldn't go in there and say, get up, I want that coke. So he had to at least lay off for a few hours. <laughs> so you're talking about possibly salacious stuff, but obviously I want to ask you this specifically because you, you might have more of an insight than anyone else. People talk about how in the 60s and 70s, if you wrote anything negative about the Beatles, you would not be able to find any work again. So was that the case? Were journalists being swept under the rug and losing jobs for writing stuff about the Beatles? 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, ask that, what the hell is his name that works for Yoko, uh, Yoko Ono, that horrible guy that John Lennon didn't like. The guy who did the, the, the Lost Lennon uh, radio show, what was his name? I'm going to Google it now. <laughs> I had on Lennon's diaries, copies of them, and he ha hates that guy, but he, Yoko put him together as, as his big friend. And he's like a pu publicist for the Beatles, a spin doctor. So the point is, listen, if yeah. you wanted to pay me two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars a year to be a fin doctor for the group, like Mark Lewison, and I'll tell you what George Harrison told me about Mark Lewison. I, I don't lie. I'm going to be in a hole. I'm 66. I, yeah, I'm going to be gone. 
I have no reason or rhyme to lie. So uh, you people don't have to like me, but they should believe me. But anyway, you know, if there's somebody wanted to hire me to $300,000, $400,000 a year to, to, to write spin about the Beatles and what wonderful, you know, saints they were, Peter Pan, flicker of light across the, off, across the street, God incarnate, walking on the water, fine, I'll do that. But in the absence of that, I just wrote my books. But, you know, I'm happy mm -hmm. because my books show a side of the Beatles, and no one can argue with this, uh, legitimately, that no one else really has. The Love You Make by Peter Brown and Stephen Gaines is a good example. Albert Grossman's book on Lennon, good example. Uh, the problem with the problem, and it is a problem, it's like a logical problem, with a lot of people that like the Beatles is that they live in some kind of fucking fairyland, and they don't want to, first of all, they spend too much time on it, and second, you know, they're in their 60s and 70s and might get a life, you know. But beyond that, they just, look, those were people, you know. They were human beings. Mm -hmm. They farted. They took a shit. They, they had fights with their wives. They did they shouldn't. And they did things that they should. Like write this fantastic uh, music. I was going to tell you something George Harrison told me. What was it? I said it one minute ago. About, um, about Martin Lewison. This is what he said, almost word for word, to me, at the home of John Lord. Mark Lewison is supposed to be this big expert. One day I was looking through one of his book and I opened one of the pages at random. And the first thing I saw was a mistake, an error. So I closed the book, put it down, and that's basically what... He saw the Beatles authors. Now, this is before I'd written the book. And, you know, it's a funny thing, because after that night that I did meet George on one occasion, yes, and you can look up and see what Olivia wrote about that night on the, uh, on the online. You oh, yeah, she, she has some very strong words to say. <laughs> so anyway, but, but a curious thing happened. I had no thought about writing a book called Dark Horse. When George left, he called up Larry and said, hey, listen, who was that guy? Oh, he's a friend of mine, Jeffrey, yeah? Well, I don't know about that guy. He might be trying to write a book or something. And he put the idea in my head. I had no idea. So I thought, well, oh, I see. Write a book. George, hmm, yeah, okay, and I did. However, I have to say to you that the kind of things that people try to nail me on, including Olivia Harrison, later came to fruition vis-a-vis. George used to fuck everything that he could get his hands on. As a friend of mine said, George was always single. If you look at the very end of the the very end of the Martin Scorsese, very good, living in the material world um, documentary mm -hmm. on George, Olivia Harrison admits that he yeah she does around. she does. And who was the first person to tell the world about that? Jeffrey Giuliano. And that's what that you look, look that these people are not in business to have other people kind of get inside and tell the truth. We've got Michael Wolf, who just wheedled his way into the White House and made gazillions of dollars, millions upon millions of dollars, eight figures, by writing a book about Donald Trump. You know, this is investigative journalism. Of course, we want to make as much money for our families as possible. But I can tell you this. I had my eye out for a good story, but I never made anything up. I mean, your publishers wouldn't have published it, though, would they? I mean, you've never had, like, legal trouble or anything? That's, see, that's what people who don't know publishing don't understand. These books are vetted by attorneys. 
And, you know, before they even give you your final payment, it's usually broken up into four payments. The publication payment mm -hmm. is not given to you until the attorneys sign off on it. And usually uh, they take the script, they mark it in red, and then you go to their office or you have a meeting on the telephone and they say, where did you get this quote? How do you know this is true? What's the truth? You know, show me, prove it to me. And you had to have three independent sources in order for them to accept it. So, I mean, it, you can't, unless you're your own publisher, you can't work for the biggest publishers in the world like I did, which mm -hmm. is uh, Penguin. I wrote many books for in their various forms like Dutton and uh, other imprints they had, Viking Studio Books, so forth. With, with, without, you know, the, the, the lawyers, and these are intellectual property lawyers, and they're the best in the world. I mean, I published a book mm -hmm. called America on, based on John Lennon's diaries. How did I do that? I know the lawyer's bill was $54,000 because I saw it. Um, so th it's all taken very seriously because these can, things, if they're wrong, can blow up um, in the publisher's faces. And who has the deep pockets? The publisher, not me. Mm. You know, you sue me, you're not going to get too much. Yeah, I mean, the fact that you're alive talking to me now is probably proof that Mal Evans wasn't assassinated by the Beatles for a, his own testimony of their stories. I will tell you something I've never told anyone else. As many people know, I live in Thailand. About four in the morning, for some reason, I was walking by the bus station in, in Pattaya, where I used to live. And this guy, mm -hmm. Dr. Penguin, came running towards me out of the dark and said, Jeffrey, 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 you'll never guess what happened. And I said, what, what, what? He said... I had a private investigator and two Hare Krishnas. One of them was Mukunda Goswami, and I think the other one was called Samasundar. They contacted me, and they said, what do you know about Jeffrey Giuliano? And they said, well, I know, I know he's, well, he's a friend of mine. You know, they're friends. What's he working on? I'll tell you what. Let, meet me at, I can't remember the name of the hotel, but it's like the most expensive hotel in, in Bangkok. Come there tomorrow for lunch and let's have, so he went there, and there was Mukunda, there was Shamasundar, there was this private investigator, or maybe two, and they said, all right, so what's Juliana working on? Well, why? What is this? He said, Yoko Ono and Olivia Harris have sent us to Thailand to find out what he's up to. Now, this guy... <laughs> oh, that's creepy, that's creepy. But he's a bit of a hustler. So he said, well, why don't we have a nice lunch and talk about it? So we ordered like a, you know, $1,000 lunch, champagne, this, that, truffles. And uh, basically he said, yeah, I know Jeffrey, and he, I know he was written books about the Beatles. That's about it. So, so nothing came of that. But the point is, without any equivocation, without any shadow of any doubt, Olivia, and this has never been out anywhere in the media, saving it for my own book, I'll give it to you now, that Olivia Harrison and Yoko Ono, Combined, I suppose, lots of money. Uh, Oriental Hotel. That's the name of the hotel. It was the Oriental Hotel in Bangkok. And they had sent these four, three or four people, I don't know what the Hare Krishnas were there for, to find out what I was up to and if I was writing any more books. So they're, 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 my books are troublesome to them because what they do is they eat away at the carefully constructed Elliot Mint. That's the name I'm looking for. That's the spin doctor for Yoko Ono that John could not abide. Um, but he, he, was at, he was actually Yoko's friend. So these guys like Elliot are supposed to do that job of promoting or talking about or, or crafting the Beatles' historic image. Not Jeffrey Giuliano. I'm some sort of scallywag, you know, some sort of, uh, 
um, Captain Jack Sp literary Captain Jack Sparrow that's got no business sticking his nose into private matters. But, you know, even George Harrison said in a deposition, Jeffrey Giuliano has a kind of skill of, of getting into places he really shouldn't and finding out things that are sort of not to be known. And that's another word for that is investigative journalists. I understand why people don't like me, but I have had death threats over the years. I have had uh, threats to my children. Not like crazy. I, I remember I got one maybe three, four years ago on Facebook, an anonymous account it turned out, where the guy said, time for you to go. Uh, you said something derogatory about John Lennon's sister. And dun, dun, dun. So, yeah, oh I, I have a lot more derogatory to say about John Lennon's sister if the occasion, when the occasion comes up. But at any rate, yeah, I, I, you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. I, I kind of walked the razor's edge, and my agent was right. I went from making forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a book to half a million dollars a book. But in my defense, I say, yeah, I never made anything up, which I know people won't believe, but I didn't. I will tell you one thing that is absolutely true, and when people criticize me for this, they're right. There's lots of mistakes in my book. And let me tell you why. Because I wrote all those books before the goddamn internet. So you couldn't go on Google and go, date of the release of Please. Yeah, you know, there are a couple of dates that are off here and there, but the actual facts are all correct as far as I'm as far as, uh, the, the, as, far as I'm concerned. There, there, there were, when I was active, two kinds of Beatle biographers. Mark Lewison is clearly a statistician. You know, it's like mm -hmm. brain watching. You know, this was done at 3 o'clock in the morning, and then they went out for 15 minutes, and then they come back, and they worked on Only a Northern Song, and these are the people. That's not what I do. I write about the people. I write about the human, the human beings, the people, and 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 their emotional. I wrote a quite a good book, sort of largely ignored, I think, called Lennon and Mc. I'm not even sure what it's called. Lennon and McCartney, maybe behind the myth. I think that's what it's called. And um, with Penguin, and it talked. It's a sort of a psychological look at, at Lennon and McCartney. And you know, there's a, interesting that they both lost their mothers at an early age. They bonded together. You know, I think if that drunken policeman hadn't knocked down Julia Lennon, or Ju uh, yeah, Julia Lennon, or and Paul's mother Mary hadn't died of breast cancer, there probably wouldn't be a Beatles. They bonded. They needed some. They needed each other, and and they bonded together. And out of this came just like sprouting out of the bare earth became this sort of talent tree. Which no one could have predicted. I mean, what if, what is the statistical likelihood of, you know, sort of four or you know three? You could say Ringo's quite talented as well. Obviously, as a drummer, they say it. Mm -hmm. They drummer George said that it, you know, and John too that we never had to tell Ringo what to play. We would just say one, two, three, four, and he'd come in right on the money. Paul might have a different uh, version of that um, as he redid some of his tracks for the White Album, but. Um, you know, what are the chances of four guys from the neighborhood just, like, getting together and they're, like, geniuses? I mean, I'm not taking anything away from that music. It's wonderful. I'm just trying to humanize them. I'm just trying to show you. Like, look, two are dead. They didn't resurrect. They're just 
human beings, really, really, really talented human beings. And you know one of the things that made the talent push that talent out is the same thing that pushed it out of uh, Picasso and, and Van Gogh is the, is the madness, is the, especially with and the tragedy, yeah. It's interesting you bring up Lennon and Paul losing their, their mothers because I've got my own little theory that, uh, you know, when Paul talks about what about the night we cried in uh, here today about this fabled night where Lennon and McCartney supposedly opened themselves up only once. I personally think that Lennon never forgave Paul for making him emotionally vulnerable like that. And I think that vulnerability was something that permeated throughout the Beatles and was never going to last. I think the Beatles always had a time limit on how long it was ever going to be together. It was always going to fail at some point. You know, Yoko Ono once said, you can never unknow what you know. So if you're sitting there and you've got access to John Lennon's diaries and you read these things, he also said in the diaries that we went out to dinner with Paul, something, I'm paraphrasing, went out to dinner mm -hmm. with Paul and, boy, are they dumb. How boring. Couldn't wait to get out of there. This kind of thing. And he also didn't mm. have much love for Yoko. However, we haven't spoken about Paul McCartney, and I don't want to screw up your interview by... by, uh, <gasps> by <laughs> Thank you very much. Let's, uh, well, actually, no, there is one thing that I, I did want to ask you about, John, before we moved on. Did you have any thoughts about what was going on between Harry Nilsson and Yoko Ono? <laughs> Uh, well, because that's one of one of the big libel cases that I could get you involved with there. I think <laughs> she's no, still alive. You could, you could well, Harry's dead. You, are you implying that there might have been some sexual union congress there, something like that? I'm not implying. I think there definitely was. I'm a big defender of Yoko. I think she gets too much rap for breaking up the Beatles, but her as a person, I'm not the biggest fan of at all, especially the whole making John's son buy his letters back and stuff like that, you know? My favourite John Lennon album is Live in New York, and it's my favourite because her vocals are cut out of it entirely. <laughs> oh, gosh, no. That thing about, on Double Fantasy, one song of John's, one song of Yoko. Nobody wanted that, especially John. Oh, it makes you sick, doesn't it? It makes you, like, I think John is, it, John Lennon is where the phrase, like, pussy whipped comes from, doesn't it? It's just, to see a man of such strength go to this, like, reclusive, housebound husband is one of the greatest tragedies of, the, of, of, of all time. Don't you understand, he was kind of frozen in time when his mother got killed. It wasn't that he was... But as much as he was, there was there was a sort of a an abeyance, a, a kind of a, 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 some part of his personality stayed, however old he was at the time, fourteen. 16, I think Paul was fourteen, and John was sixteen. You know, they just kind of it was so traumatic that they got that John and Paul. I mean, they both called their wives mommy. I mean, I I've been married three times. I never called my wife mommy ever, even even in bed. I didn't know Paul did. I didn't know. I didn't know Paul did. Once in a while, yeah, he called. Not, I mean, Linda, I'm talking about. And by the way, oh, yeah. by the way, I knew Linda McCartney a bit, and she was lovely. She was a real nice person. But when I did the book with Ginger Baker, which was not published, it'll be published later after he dies. He sees a son of a bitch. But um, he told me that you know she was quite the groupie to be. Yeah, I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be kind to Linda because I liked her. But you know, she was quite groovy and she 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 got around quite a bit before she she settled in with paul 
<laughs> I think you have to be a woman of experience to keep Paul McCartney under your claws, I think. The very good Francie Schwartz books, I know she doesn't like me, that's okay, um, I, which is really hard to get, called Body Count. I had or have a copy of it, and she was foolish and never republished it. She, she said that Paul wasn't very sexual at all. Wasn't it? Really? I don't get that impression at all, especially with uh, Eat at Home. I, I feel Paul is a, uh, a great proliferator of coloured ingus with uh, a, song, a song like that. I'd like to say that Ram is my absolutely favourite. Mac- I like Ram. Ed well done, Jeffrey. Well done. You sang all the right things. Red Rose Speedway. Sometimes I cry. When there, what's that song? It might be Single Pigeon. Don't know why you hang around my door. I don't live here anymore. All those. Little Land Dragon, Dragonfly as well, yeah. Little Land Dragonfly. You and I still have a way to go. Don't know why you hang around my door. I don't live here anymore. So, uh, so starting from Wildlife, Red Rose Speedway, but my absolute favorite is Ram. And I always felt that Ram would, should, and still could be made into a Broadway musical. It's just, there's so mm. many, you know, there's so many wonderful characters. It's so rich. It's just like Alice in Wonderland and the string arrangements and the vocals and, uh, you know. Well, it's key in my theory that all good Paul McCartney albums come from tragedy. Ram comes from the breakup of the Beatles. Band on the Run comes from the tragedy of Wings. London Town comes from the struggle of Wings again. Tug of War, the death of John Lennon. All of his good albums come from tragedy in his life. Yeah, but see, but see, I think what was the one after Ram? Uh, wildlife. No, Wildlife was the first, wasn't it? Of those. No, solos. Ram. Ra- Ram is a Paul McCartney uh, and Linda. Yeah, no, McCartney, Wildlife. So it goes. No, it goes. It goes. McCartney, Ram, Wildlife, Red Rose. That those are my favorite Paul McCartney albums, and I think that they stack up with you know, like what? Well, what about the song "Dear Friend"? On wildlife, that's obviously about John. Is this really the borderline? wonderful and uh, whatever happened the animals in the zoo you know it's just it's all really really good now Denny Lane lived at my house for nine months and he helped mm-hmm. me write Blackbird I paid him 500 I mean I hate to say this he was that broke <laughs> I gave him 500 bucks for helping me write the book and if, if no one believes me yet if you go to my audible audiobooks online anywhere or my audiobooks online audible Amazon anywhere you can see that there's a Den Lane 
one where I actually recorded I, the the interview we did in the recording studio. I put it out as an audio book. No, I, I lived with Denny. Both Denny and I had an affair with Jojo Lane, but as Steve Howley said to me, who hasn't? But God rest his soul. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Jojo, she was just this, this sex thing that came from planet fuck and suck. And she was just wonderful. And she just, get, you know, she was Mother Earth. She used to breastfeed my baby, 40 years old now. She used to breastfeed me. She used to breastfeed Steve Holly, you name it. She was just the big earth mother that was giving to everybody. And she fell down and broke her neck uh, when she was drunk, which she was often. And uh, God rest her soul, I don't have a bad word to say about JoJo. She was wonderful. I loved her. But if you want to find it. I'm going to take a quote from your interview with the late, great Joan Rivers, which you can find on YouTube. It's a cracking little clip where you have the squeakiest wooden chair imaginable. Um, you say that out of all the Beatles, Paul was the most superficial. Do you still feel that way? Superficial, not artistically or musically so much, although I haven't listened. The last, I stopped listening to his albums after Flowers in the Dirt. I really like Crush to Play. The sound of water going through the pipes. Brown mm. trousers. It was sort of Paul McCartney makes Pink Floyd. I like Crush to Play. And then whatever after came after, then I just stopped. The, the devil Run, Devil Run. None of those. I, never, I have never been listened to them one time. Superficial in this way. When you meet him, He's kind of phony, show busy, hello darling kind of thing. He doesn't actually say that, but it's like that. It's that sort of mm -hmm. phony autograph, full of himself. Linda wasn't. She was. I'm, look, I'm not saying I've met them a few. I've met him a few times. He has. He's cordial, but he's sort of professionally cordial. There's something mm. doesn't quite. It's just sort of another. Like he's something he's expected to do rather than just. Being with people. Look, at when I went, met George Harrison, if I hadn't known it was George Harrison, I would I would have thought it was the plumber coming to you know clean out the pipes or the gardener coming to you know get his wages for the week. I mean, he had Wellington boots on. His teeth weren't that good, which it was a funny thing because I you know I, I got <laughs> close to him, which is I know you something you maybe wanted to ask me about the night I met George Harrison. Tapped him on the knee touched him and got into his personal zone, which was bullshit, but I, I didn't expect... You know, someone would have said to me, hey, all right, Jeffrey, George Harrison's going to be here in a few minutes. Like, don't do anything stupid. But but when I was there alone and I opened the door and I was with Olivia and holy fuck, it was just, I'm sure my face was open fail. But, um, yeah, I, I, I George was a normal guy. John was a pretty normal guy, except Yoko was, I mean, Yoko, if you want to know about Yoko, you can read Lennon in America, you can read the Albert Grossman book. I want to write a book about her called Black Widow, Yoko Ono, Unauthorized, but I'm not going to fool around with it at almost six. It's a good title, it's a good title. Unless I'm paid a million dollars or something, and I don't know if anyone will. See, what they want you to do now, as opposed to, I digress a little bit, in, in my day, you would give them an idea an outline and a sample chapter and show them your research and they give you like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now they want you to write the whole book on spec. And if they like it, they'll give you some money. I'm not doing that. 
I mean, I've written 30 books, that's enough. But I would like to write a book on Yoko Ono, and somebody should, because there's plenty to say about her. But Paul McCartney, vacuous, shallow, words I've used, phony. But I never meant that about his work. I just meant it about sort of the fake way that he acts with people sometimes. I think he probably is, you know, bored with it, and it's boring, and he feels he has to do it. And uh, just look at there's 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 um, a lot of things on YouTube where you can see. I forgot the name of it, but there's one where New York doing something with in benefit of the firemen and all these sort of people come in like Bill Clinton and hey babe how are you and it's all this show busy and it just doesn't ring true to me and that's okay I mean not not everybody's perfect in fact if they were perfect I wouldn't have made nine million dollars so uh, I, I have profited from their imperfection and I really you know other than other than really I mean at the end of the day which is almost here for all of us especially me at 66 um Grossman and me and Peter Brown and Stephen Gaines. There's not too many. There's just a small handful of people, of authors that have bothered to try to chronicle the Beatles as human beings rather than demigods. And I think that's a great shame. And I do think that if you can forgive the fact that we didn't have the Internet and I don't have release dates right and there's a lot of fuck-ups in my books that could be fixed if the money and the inclination was there, I got pretty darn close to the people that that they were or were at times. I mean, I knew George Harrison a bit. And I knew, certainly knew people that were like Legs Larry Smith, who was a friend of mine for years, who was like George's best friend. So I, you know, I had some insight. But the only thing that pisses me off is when they say I made things up and lied. And I, didn't, I never did that. And as I told you, they wouldn't let me. I wouldn't have gotten past the publisher. It's all fake news. It's all fake news. <laughs> Aside from your own vaults, do you feel that there's going to be a deluge of stuff going to come out about the Fab Four once Paul, Olivia, Yoko and Ringo pass away? Is the stuff that's going to come out? I have a stand. I have agreements with every major newspaper in England that they will call me the millisecond uh, any one of those people dies. Uh, Olivia Harrison, I don't have anything on, but I have a lot of stuff on Yoko. I have a lot of stuff on John Lennon. And I, I listen, if you want to know about Paul McCartney, the, all you have to do is go and put in Jeffrey Giuliano, Ruth McCartney in Amazon, and you'll see 12, I think it's 12 or maybe more audiobooks that I did with interviews with uh, Ruth and Angela McCartney and before they were all goody two-shoes. Um, when they were upset with Paul and they told the real story about Paul McCartney. If you want to know, it's already out there, but they haven't sold. They're, they've been ignored. Um, but uh, if you look up the audiobooks that I did, and it's a whole series with uh, Ruth and Angela McCartney, you'll hear in their own words. I just talked to Ruth recently. She's, you know, she's not thrilled about it, but she knows that I did the... Uh, See, they were going to do a book with me, and I, I couldn't sell it. And so I always make a deal that if, with celebrity, if I'm going to sit down with you for two weeks and get your life story, if we can't sell the book, all the tapes and the content therein uh, belongs to me. And they signed one of those, so I put it out as audiobooks many, many years later. So I would, I would advise anybody that wants to know who Paul McCartney really is, 
just download. It's nothing about, I don't care about the money. I only make a few cents per download. But it's if you really want to know, those ones that I did with Ruth and Angela McCartney are really, really good. Um, they cry. They talk about when Jim McCartney died, basically the money stopped and they were asked to leave property and they were sleeping in an abandoned apartment and cars and uh, Paul completely didn't go to the funeral for Jim and uh, there's a lot of you know made some moves on Ruth and uh, reduced her to tears a few times when Magira's Dance to Do came out and she went to uh, wherever it is she lives in London I've forgotten the name of the road what, what street does she live on in St. John's Wood What's the name of that street? Um, it's the name of the street that I used to live on, um, Cavendish. Cavendish Avenue. I think, yeah, that's that's where he lived for quite a while, wasn't it? Still owns it. Anyway, so she told me that she had gone there and she knew this, the, this, there was like a, a code on the gate so she could ring. She said, Pa, I've got great news for you. That pa, uh, um, uh, Mike's going to be on top of the pop singing uh, Dance the Do and I've been invited to do to dance to, to make a dance called the do and I've got listen nobody wants you you're nothing you're ugly you're stupid the only reason that anybody wants or Mike on their TV show is because of me and don't forget it she ran out crying with all the little mm -hmm. apple scraps I've heard that one yeah have you heard that one yeah, that's uh, one of the two kind of infamous Nasty Paul stories. The other one, is, obviously, is when the journalists came up to Scotland to try and find out if he was dead or not. And supposedly he smashed a bunch of cameras and there are these deleted photos that will be lost of him going absolutely crazy and being this rage-filled man. And that, and that is a side that, you know, Paul would like to say is fake news, but I, uh, you know... For him to be so peace-loving, like John, there has to be this yin and yang to him. I like the one where uh, John threw a brick through the window at Cavendish Avenue. Because Yeah, I love that one. Those <laughs> had come for a session, Paul was supposed to be there, and he just didn't show and didn't call. And, and when John went round and said, what, what, what the fuck is this? And he said, Linda and I thought we'd have a quiet night in. Quiet night in? Oh, and then... He also, at the doorway, there was a, a oil painting that Hugh Stutcliffe had given to Paul, and John wrecked it, and then he went out in the street and he picked up some kind of a brick or stone or something and flung it through the window. That's an absolutely true story. Oh, no, see, I thought the brick was after Paul won the lawsuit when the Beatles broke up. I thought that's when Lennon threw a brick through his window. That's not the way I heard it, and I'll tell you, and there's another one where... John and Yoko, after they got busted in Montague Square, 54 Montague Square, infamous home of Jimi Hendrix and also The Fool and others, Ringo owned the apartment, that they went to live and take refuge at Cavendish Avenue. And one day, John got up early to whatever, eating his cornflakes, and there was a sort of note on the, on the fucking, uh, what do you call it, mantle of the fireplace. And it said in Paul's writing, it was a white card, and you opened it up, and it just said, you and your Japanese tart think you're hot shit. So, yeah, 
You ever heard that one? No, that's, no that just sounds cold, man. I mean, I was listening to um, another. I was listening to another Beatles podcast, and there was one a story I heard where George was talking to John after the concert for Bangladesh, and John had pulled out of the concert at the last minute. And George asks John to take off his glasses because I can't see your eyes. And then Lennon takes his glasses off and George says, I still can't see your eyes. I just think, God, they, they knew how to cut each other down. They knew how to really piss each other off in the way that only the best friends could, I suppose. Well, what's funny about that concert from Bangladesh is John said, I'm not doing it. But Yoko said, I'll do it. And George said, oh, um, maybe not. <laughs> All these Beatles, and I'm I'm only allowed to be on yours. I'm I'm persona non grata everywhere else. But I will tell you that I live in here, and I'm the one who checks my email and my Facebook. And I'll tell you that my mail is like this: ten to twelve percent. You're a fucking dirtbag, lying son of a bitch. <laughs> this man, I really dig your books. The, you know, terrific books, whatever. The, my uh, audience is far more positive than it is negative. But it, it's that vocal minority that like to make out. What I mean, I told you. I, you didn't have to uncover it. In a, I told you I wrote a lot of those books to make money. And then when Robert Smith sat me down and said, you know, the Beatles are celebration, I think I made 45,000 pounds or something. He said, you know, you can make... 400,000 pounds if you put some stuff in there, like Kitty Kelly. And if you go and look, the name Kitty Kelly, I think she's been dead for years. But there was a genre of books. See, they, were te- they were called tell-all biographies. And I just sort of, Kitty Kelly was getting, I never got millions. I got $500,000 for Lenin in America from the American publisher. Maybe I made almost close to a million on that book. But um, it's all gone now, so it doesn't matter. But... Um, yeah, there was that kind of genre of books that we don't have anymore with all the political correctness. Um, but Yoko, there's a good book in Yoko. You know, the older I get and the more sort of content I get, I, I'm, I'm not really as, you know, they say hungry brothers make the best boxers. I'm not sure how interested I am in sitting down and, and having the discipline to write another book. I suppose if they put a big pile of money in front of me, I would. I'm writing my own autobiography called uh, Bad Words, um, Jeffrey Giuliano at Twilight. And uh, I'm going to put a lot of stuff in there. For instance, I may or may not have had a sexual affair with Yoko Ono. We'll see. Oh, my God. That is... That's pretty explosive, wow. <laughs> you Come on, Jeffrey, you must love some of this notoriety you have. There's a little bit of adulation that comes with being so controversial. There was money attached, and now it's a pain in the ass. I'll tell you a, a very interesting encounter I had in India with a very famous, very powerful... No, sorry, he wasn't at all famous, but, very, but said to be very powerful yogi. And he... Across the room said to me, do you want, he didn't know me, never talked to me, he said, do you want to be rich or famous? And I said, famous! And you know what, I am famous, but I'm not rich anymore. I realize now that was the wrong answer. <laughs> I should have said fucking rich, because that's a lot more convenient. Than, it's an infamy that I have, really. And I'm, it's, a, it's a bit of a curse, because, you know, I haven't made any money from these books in years, really. 
and I still get all the flack. So it's a sort of a pain in the ass. But I'm happy to talk to anybody. Listen, I'm brutally honest, and I'm happy to t- In fact, Pete Townsend, it was actually, I got that story wrong. It was Pete that wrote me a letter after I wrote the book, Behind Blue Eyes, of Life of Pete Townsend. He said, I have to respect you for the fact that if you're willing to slide me off so much, that you're willing to do it about yourself as well. Because when I worked for Pete in the summer of 1976, I borrowed, stole, liberated a tape, of unreleased Tommy tape from his office, he found, I just wanted to make a dub for myself. I wasn't really stealing it to sell. I just wanted a dub. Mm-hmm. But it was inappropriate. And he found out about it. And I lied. And he gave me a chance to come clean. And I lied about it. And he said, not only a cunt, you're a lying cunt as well. Now, we've since, been, we've been friends ever since. <laughs> it's a great line. And I know everybody will use it against me now. But yeah, I'm, I, he did write me after I wrote. In fact, also his brother Simon Townsend. Who was I was on the same radio show with after the show was over said, "Listen, man, I want to tell you about your book Behind Blue Eyes. It hit a little cl- too close to the bone. That was the phrase he used, and it upset Pete. It was so accurate. And I've also had people close to Pete tell me that number one, he wrote his autobiography, Who I Am, in reaction to my book Behind Blue Eyes." And also that Pete secretly feels that my book is more accurate. So I don't know. You know, I don't know. But there was a, there was a whole. Why was Jeffrey Giuliano successful? Because it was just before the internet. There was a hole in rock that I filled. I was hardworking. I would do three or four books a year. I had a young family I had to take care of. It was very exciting. We didn't do interviews on podcasts. They would put you on a first class business flight from Toronto to London. You'd be picked up in a limousine and you'd be taken to uh, the Dorchester. And I, I did all that, but nobody does it anymore unless they're like a, you know, a big, big star. But I had the last star treatment. I was the last round generation of uh, authors that made lots of money and were sort of superstars. I remember once I was in Oman, of all places, and some guy started chasing me. So... I did what anyone does. I ran. And he said, no, stop. And I and eventually I stopped. And he said, you're Jeffrey Giuliano, right? And I said, yeah. Like I was going to get arrested or mugged. And he said, yeah, yeah, I got all your books. Man. I have your autograph. Then I was at a Ringo Starr concert once in Toronto. And some kid came up and he had a Gucci raincoat on. Now, I don't know how much a Gucci raincoat cost. But I <laughs> bought some money. And he pulled out a magic mark. And he said, I want you to sign your name right up the coat. And I said, listen, dude. Now listen, come here, man. Look, I write some books. <laughs> Normal dude. Please, I don't want to fuck up your raincoat, man. That's Gucci. He said, no, man. I came here because I knew you were going to. I've got the pen. Please write your name like really big on my Gucci raincoat. And I, again, maybe two or three times. And then, and then I fucking did it. And so now I got home. We go, what the fuck is this? <laughs> but I ruined the coat, you know. I mean, I don't know. Somebody actually, so funny. Somebody just sent me a hundred dollars on my PayPal, and I, what's this for? And they said, could I have your autograph? And I said, dude, you could have my autograph for nothing. But I'll take a hundred. <laughs> you know, I have just enough fame for it to be, you know, a little bit of a pain in the ass. It rarely comes in helpful, but it's okay. Yeah, you could probably see that as quite liberating, I suppose. 
the other cool thing about you as an author is that you were part of, the, of this generation that were actually there when all of this stuff was happening. You're not writing about it in retrospect. So there's a couple of questions that I want to ask that I, I generally can't ask most of the people. Were Wings as unpopular as everyone says? Were they a joke band or has that been blown out of proportion a bit? I really like Wings. I don't know why they're not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Linda McCartney is one of the nicest people I ever met. She's a real hippie. I mean, she was just a real hippie. JoJo didn't have a lot of good to say about her. But I liked her. The, what they said was what you know, which is she can't play what's she doing in the band. But they wanted to be together. I don't see anything wrong. And I love, I love her backing vocals with exactly they are they, they are key they are key to the wings formula like going winging you know and singing my love song to you i am your singer is the best song on that album you are 100% right it is the it's the only duet they ever do as well you are my love you are my song linger on you are my song i You are my one You are my own melody You are my song I am your singer You know, okay, the plane In fact, uh, Steve Holly, who used to be a friend of mine Wrote the forward to Blackbird It's not in the cover, it should be The afterward, the backward he wrote He said to me that she couldn't play anything a lot of it was pre-programmed, and she just sort of put her fingers there. And everybody's heard that that mixing board, uh, Hey Jude, where she goes, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> you doing the Red Road Speedway and Wildlife and all that. I just loved even, even anything those two did. I just thought the American twang and his sort of English whatever were just perfect together and I love to hear Lindo. You know what? You know, you know what I've never heard? And if you play music, you should play a cut from this. I've never even seen it. I don't know what it looks like and I haven't heard one song as Wild Prairie Made her solo album. Do you, you have that, right? Yeah, it's just been reissued, actually. How is it? Uh, well, I'm a big fan of Seaside Woman. I think it's unabashedly one of the best Wings comp compositions they ever made. I love that kitsch. It's very kitsch, you know. You're either going to like it or, you, or, you, or you're going to hate it. I do have a soft spot for Linda, so I am very biased, but I like the album. I'll tell you, the best Wings album I think ever made was McGear. Because that was nothing but a Wings album. That was Wings. That was all of yeah. my... Danny lived at my house, I know. That was Wings with Mike on lead vocals. And the man who found God on the moon, I think, is just 
one of the best songs ever. I put it up in there with a day in the life. in his face suit was the man who found God on the moon you should have seen him flip he nearly lost his grip it was a total trip Going back to Jimmy McCulloch just for a moment, uh, and going back to to uh, Jojo Lane, this is uh, one of the most infamous bits of your book, Blackbird, and uh, I want to talk about Jojo Lane as a source, as a credible source. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm sure you know what I'm getting at. Um, there's a story of Jimmy McCulloch getting a gun and entertaining the idea of massacring the McCartneys in their bed. Yeah, well, look, he was really pissed. He'd been drinking straight whiskey, I believe she told me. And there was a gun there, because there were probably, for whatever reason, they had a, some kind of a pistol, an old pistol, and, and he went up there, and then he just sort of went home. And he sort of, yeah, there was a lot of, but I like he was a feisty little Scot. And, uh, and I love his song, Medicine Jar. And unfortunately, he says, you won't get far if you keep out putting your hand in the medicine jar. And that's exactly what happened. He kept doing it and he fucking killed himself. Even with Jim McCartney, if you listen to those Ruth and Angie audiobooks that are out there that I've got on the net uh, everywhere for sale, you'll, you'll hear where Jim McCartney had to sleep on a mattress in a barn. And that when they had like flies fall into their food and they had to like say that they were going for a ride in the country so they could go get something to eat at a, at a cafe God knows how far away from the Mall of Kintyre there um, because they, they weren't really given food. And Jim had terrible arthritis at the time. Ultimately, he died from complications of arthritis. I have nothing of interest to say. If anybody wants to know anything about the real Paul McCartney, just listen to those Ruth and Angela McCartney. They were very regretful about making those tapes with me. And they begged me not to put them out. But I put them out anyway because I felt that they were historically important. And the way that Paul McCartney treated his father his stepmother, and his adopted sister. Don't let anyone tell you. Paul McCartney will say, what about your sister? I don't have a sister. Oh, yes, you fucking do. Because I have copies of the legal papers where Jim McCartney adopted. He has an adopted sister, Ruth McCartney. you got to get Ruth on here. Get Ruth, but she won't say anything now. Unless, of course, you, 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 you trick her and trap her by getting all, all <laughs> downloading my series and then you say well what about this and uh, she'll be she, she won't know what to say but Angie God bless her is almost 90 I think now 
but at any rate, um, I if you really want to know that, I mean, they, 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 they were there from 1963 to, nine, to Jim's death, which I think... 76, I believe, uh, Wings Over America, so it would have been 76, I think. They were there through the whole thing. I mean, they know better than anybody. And they came to my house, virtually penniless, almost homeless, because I used to have a big mansion. And uh, anybody could stay with houses. Mm-hmm. I didn't even see them. So I said, stay as long as you want. And my wife was a big sort of earth mother making veggie food for everybody. So it was no problem. We see eat each other at dinner. So I had a lot of people that lived with me. Ginger Baker, Denny Lane. Um, he was married to Helen Grant. That's the, this, the daughter of Peter Grant from Led Zeppelin. I'll tell you a funny story about Peter Grant. Um, let's go back to Denny for a moment. Obviously, when you were interviewing him he was at a certain point in his life uh how how much do you think of oh yeah so like you know wings is broken up he's broke how much of what he told you do you think was skewed by his position mall of Gintyre, everything he did he got a i have the i have i used to have the documents i used to have the contract he got one hundred thousand quid for all the work he did and there's some songs they wrote together, obviously. Uh, we know Mall of Kintyre, but on London Town, there's a couple as well. And, um, you know, those are worth millions. Now, there was going to be a reunion of Wings with the original lineup, but Denny fucked it up by asking for a million dollars up front, and Paul told him to fuck off. That's a fact. Was that going to be with Linda, when Linda was still alive? Oh, after Linda died. It wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have worked. 99, 2000, something like that, 2002. But Denny, it was all set, and Denny asked for and everybody said, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that, the money will follow. This, uh, d- d- that's never, it's never going to work, and it didn't work. And he asked for a million dollars up front before he would ever come to one rehearsal, and Paul just said, yeah, fuck that. And if you look on the internet, you'll see one photo of them where they met one time backstage. Oh, that's it, it's such a shame. Mike McCartney told me, with all, his exact quote, with all of the Beatles. Oh, I haven't put that interview out yet. I will. He said, "With all of the Beatles, you get one chance, and then you're you're blocked. You're gone. You never existed." So he said they can mm. be quite hard, as Liverpool people are. He said to me that if you if they feel you trans any transgressions were there, then you will be. Out of not just out of favor, but you don't exist. I don't even know who the fuck you are. And that happened with Jojo. That happened with Denny. See, Denny sold his story to the new, the British news, and it was very difficult not to because I mean, I myself, I got one time fifty thousand pounds for a, a story uh, on Denny Lane called Denny Lane Digs Gardens for Cash at Arthur Giuliano's house, and he was doing that. He was. He said, can I do some work around the house? Don't be sued. He got some money for that, which I didn't care. I didn't pay, but I got 50 grand for that. Well, I mean, you used to get a lot of money. In fact, number three, the High Street St. John's Wood is JoJo's house. And if you go there right now, you'll see all of Heidi, Joe, Hines. So if you want to go see Denny Lane's kids, you can go to number three, the High Street St. John's Wood, and that's where they are. Wow. I'm probably going to have to make, make a little uh, trip down to London then. Do you um, personally feel, like, just your own opinion, how do you think 
the breakup of wings went went down? Do you think it was fair, or do you think it was Paul trying to assassinate himself? Everything about it, from the point of view of Steve Polly, JoJo Lane, and Denny Lane, and it was Denny Lane going, what the fuck is wrong with you? The roadies carry the dope. And you've just fucked up this tour that's taking all these years to put together. I've had it, and he went off and did a, a horrible album. Just like it's the it's the Mick Taylor syndrome, thinking you're going to be able to do the same, replicate the success on your own. I'm going to quit the Rolling Stones and make a solo album. Okay, good luck with that, Mick. And the same thing with, with Denny Lane. Fuck Wings, I'm going to do this album, Japanese Tears, which is like the worst album in the world. This is, this is like the Mick Taylor syndrome. No, I think I'll leave the Rolling Stones and I'll do better on my own. Okay, have fun with that. Good luck with that, pal. And Denny Lane did the same. He was just, Denny Lane was really pissed about that. And Steve Holly was in Japan and he was in his room and he got a call because they went through at a different time through customs. He said that uh, Linda going, uh, uh, busted. <laughs> and um, a few days later, Steve was given some money, I believe, and, an, and definitely an around-the-world unlimited ticket where he could go, and it was, I guess, have those, where you can go anywhere you want for a certain number of months or something. And, and, and that was the end of it. Although, Denny had played on Tug of War. Did you know that? Oh yeah, he's 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 all over that, and I don't think he ever got the rights or the or the money throughout the back end for that. He's on loads of those tracks, quite obviously as well. I know that that was supposed to be a Wings album. Tug of War was supposed to be a Wings album. I know that. Yeah, um, there are um, average person. Uh, you, you can hear "Take It Away" being played by Wings in those in those early demos, and. Thankfully, it wasn't a Wings album because clearly Paul just wasn't interested in doing the material with Denny at that point. But if you read the source material, it does say that stuff written right the way up to Pipes of Peace. Some of it could have a Denny Lane writing credit if you so interpreted it that way. One thing I do want to just uh, going back to Paul being busted in Japan. There are rumours that Yoko had them set up because Paul rang up Yoko and was like, ah, me and Linda are going to stay in your and John's hotel room. Uh, and then Yoko had them busted. Shut up! They were going to stay at the Akura Hotel in the presidential suite. And that's where John and Yoko stayed. And Yoko said that that would ruin their hotel karma and that they shouldn't <laughs> stay in that suite. And uh, do I, would I put it past her? No. Do I have any proof that she did it? No. Do I think it's, I think it's uh, even odds that she was behind it? Um, it's definitely the kind of thing, in my opinion, she would do 
but I have no proof. It's purely my purely speculative. But sure sounds like something that that she would have could could have so easily arranged. Remember, her thought, her her family is from the mm. aristocracy, going back to the royal family of Japan. They go way back. They were samurai warriors and everything else. Um, they go back, you know, th- a long, long time. So she had the absolute ability to do that if she wanted. Another thing interesting I didn't know about Yoko, is she's until recently, fairly recently, she's got quite a few siblings, and one of them was uh, quite a famous sculptoress uh, who lived in uh, uh, New Jersey or something like that, and um, came from quite a big family. And I also know that during World War II, when their house was bombed and Yoko was like oldest and had some of the little ones with her, that they had cyanide capsules, and they, as they were roaming around the sort of war-torn, you know, blown-up Japan during the war, that they they were starving, they were hungry, they were walking, and that she had these cyanide capsules that they were ready to bite down on if things got too rough, which I find interesting. Well, that's a very good, it's a good story. It's true too. You know, there was one book, the book written on Yoko by Gary Hopkins, who died recently. He was a friend of mine. He wrote No One Gets Out of Here Alive, the Jim Morrison book that was made into the film The Doors. See, it's interesting you should bring that up because there's so much of John Lennon's negative life that gets pushed to one side. Oh, you know, his mom died. He had a tough life. Oh, Michael Jackson, you know, he didn't have a childhood, so don't worry about that. Do you not feel that we should give Yoko the same credit coming from bombed out Japan, coming from poverty and near starvation, should she get a similar leniency? Except her art was fucking bullshit and didn't amount to a hill of beans, but was she an additional oppressor of John Lennon? Absolutely. As I've often said, people make the point, well, if the Beatles hadn't broken up, we wouldn't have the song Imagine, which comes directly from Grapefruit. And the answer is, yeah, that's true. But we might have had another 30 or 40 years of Beatle music. It's, uh, it's definitely one, one of those horrible what-ifs. I mean, I'm writing an episode right now about what the Beatles set list would be if they got back together in 1981. And the possibilities are endless. Like, it would have been the biggest comeback story in history, but hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I'm weird. I didn't like records like Dark Horse where George just can't sing from the tour. And he's horse. I'm a dark horse. You know. Uh, yeah, yeah. All that stuff. I like Far East Man. That's a really good song that he wrote with Ron Wood while the world wages war, blah, 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 blah. Far East Man. I'm digressing all over the place. Have we talked for five hours now or something? Because I'm falling. We're only on 90 minutes. Uh, so, you know what, Jeffrey? I'm going to uh, give you your opportunity to do a final plug. And um, we can wrap this up. Well, I mean, I've nothing to plug. I, if you, The books, I'm struggling to get them back in print. The problem is, is that if you scan them, they won't scan properly. And like Cat 
will be caught or something like that. And drug will mm. be done. And someone has to go through and fix all that. And I, I don't know who that's going to be. But what I did do is I put out about 300 spoken word um, audiobooks, which contain all the, yeah, pretty much all the celebrity interviews I did, which most audiobooks don't. They're just somebody reading a book. In fact, I only have got three where I read my books because they're editing intensive and expensive to make. So if you'd like to hear some very mm -hmm. rare interviews from my archives, I would say to uh, just put in, go to Amazon or Audible or, or audiobooks.com or anywhere and everywhere that audiobooks are sold, put in the name Jeffrey Giuliano, spell it correctly, and you'll see something there that you like, I'm sure. But, yeah, nothing to plug. I, I, I made a movie in Malaysia recently for ITV. I'm off to Seoul, Korea to make another film, fucking zombie film, but I get $5,000 a day, so that's okay. You know, I'm sort of, I guess I'm <laughs> somewhat, you know, I'm 66. I have to be retired at some level, but I still work a lot more than most 66. I know I'm 65, 66 on September 11th, but um, I, I, uh, I still work quite a bit. I'm not doddering at all. There's, my health hasn't hit me yet. The old age hasn't really hit me yet. And I want to get my books out again, but the problem is that you need not only a copy editor, but you need someone to reset the type. And that means you need to use a program called Adobe Photoshop. Uh, no, no, no. Adobe InDesign. Adobe InDesign, which is a quite a complex program, and I don't know how to do all that. Mm. So the people that are putting, you know, I, I do have to get on to that. Ah, I'll tell you something interesting about books. Books are like children. You give birth to them, and then they go into the world and have a life of their own. So right now, Blackbird is affecting people and Dark Horse. You know, the, all the 32 books that I wrote are out there fucking with people's minds at some level, good, bad, or indifferent, and, and having their own life. And then they try to reflect it back onto me. You know, I mean, I don't know however it's affecting you now, good or whatever. No, I'm just a guy. I'm just a normal. Which has always been the point of anything I ever did. I'm just a guy. The Beatles are just a guy. Jimi Hendrix was just a guy. You're just a guy. Everybody's just a guy. And we're all going to be thrown in a hole eventually. And uh, it's interesting that what we overcome to create our art is what is of interest to me. God is the concept by which we measure our pain. I'll say it again. To any contribution in the literary world, it's been that truth that uh, that art is the the culmination or the the end result of overcoming some kind of impasse one's personality or one's life and be to as the blues people did, man, sing. Where does that come from? It comes from God is the concept by which we measure our pain. And, I, and you know, that's my last word, and I, I, I know it's valid. And, you know, all this kind of happy, happy little thing. You know, and I will tell you, don't forget what John Lennon said in the Playboy interviews. He said, I will never become a singing jukebox of my hits when I'm 40. And look at Paul. He's doing it when he's 80. Now, look, if Paul wants to go out there and sing those songs, everybody wants to hear them. And it's a great treat, and it's fun, and it's intimate, but 
you know, is his voice as good now when he's like 80 as when he was like 30? No. That's why he has those young guys there to hit the high note. They're not stupid. And the, the mixing guys at the desk when he's doing long and winding road and all that. You know, you can hear those. I just wish he would do a small set with just him and the piano doing small, soft, and just change, Paul, change the key, send it down a register, and do a really good set of just you on piano. too. Why don't you just alter it? Now, I'll tell you that Mick Jagger uh, had an operation on his vocal cords so that he could hit those notes. There is an operation you can have. Paul seems to have resisted plastic surgery, um, so, so is Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, that's for sure. That's a generational thing. I've had a facelift, two nose jobs and a chin job. Um, and I'm about to get a tummy tuck. Um, so I guess my generation, it's okay. And it's like not some big, oh, he's had work done. Yeah, so who cares? But th that generation, they just won't do anything. I mean, so they look like, oh, my God. But anyway, God bless you all. Hare Krishna. I don't know what else to say. If you don't like me, I suppose you'll, that'll continue. And if you don't know who I am, maybe now you do. And maybe you care or you don't. The books are there. The audios are there. And good luck to you all. Jeffrey, thank you so much for coming on, man. I feel very honored to have this semi-exclusive uh, chat with you. And on an... <laughs> Well, it's their loss, my friend. It is their loss entirely because this has been massively fun for me, honestly. No, they, I, I've offered, I've offered myself uh, at the altar of some of these other podcasters, and they don't even get back to me. I'm the bad guy, so it's okay. At least you were. Let's just say you were brave enough to have me on. Hey, man, content is content. <laughs> You're going to get feedback on this show for sure. And send it all to me. I love to read it. And let me give me send me the link so I can hear it as well. Oh, and all of your controversial things. I'm going to email NME and Q Magazine and Kerrang, and they'll all be clamoring for it. They'll all be clamoring for it. Oh, there was a, there was a, the biggest honors of my literary life was what's that big big rock magazine in England? The biggest one that does like has the stones in the cover. Is it Q? Yes, and yeah. They, when I wrote my Pete, they turned my name into a verb. They said, when, when Behind Blue Eyes came out, on the cover it said, Oh no, Pete has been Giuliano'd. <laughs> I felt yes. honored that my, I, my name had been turned into a verb. Well, you have Giuliano'd this podcast. <laughs> Something which is sort of untoward and written by a horrible man. All right, my dear. Thank you very much. Be in touch. God bless all you listen. It's been a pleasure. All right, mate. Ta-da. Harry Krishna. Harry Krishna. Take care, man. The live segment of the show. Take it away, me. And there we are, ladies and gentlemen. That was my conversation. Well, not sure conversation was the best word. That was my time with the wonderful Mr. Jeffrey Giuliano. All of his links and... Uh, Links to all of his books can be found down below, and I can only recommend you check out his various acting show reels that you can find on YouTube. Who knows, maybe we can get this guy a role in Marvel's new X-Men franchise or something, we, we can only hope. Obviously there were some elements of that conversation that were very explosive, some of which, which need some serious verification and follow-up, but yeah, that was everything I wanted and more from an interview with Jeffrey Giuliano. We got a real look into the real guy there, and I always appreciate 
that you know, any chance just to sit back, relax, and let someone else do all the talking for a change. And again, please, as Jeffrey said, please let me know in the email, let me know on the Twitter what you thought of this interview and what you think of the man himself. If you've read any of his books or maybe you were that guy who wanted him to sign his Gucci coat at that Ringo Starr gig all those years ago. Thank you very much for listening, folks. Coming up, I've got a bonus episode where I'm going to be with Tom Hunyadi again. We're going to be discussing our perfect 1980s Beatle reunion gig set lists. Pipes of pieces on the way. I've already booked the guest. I've already booked the guest for Press to Play. I've already started writing my notes on that. Looking forward to doing that. And the Wings Over Europe slash Wings in Groningen episode is being edited as we speak. Looking for a very soon release as well. I'm Sam Wiles. You've been listening to Paul or Nothing. Thank you very much for listening, folks. Take care. Please keep listening to Paul. Take it away, Denny. <laughs>